0: Acts chapter 21, I'm going to read verse 4 and then 9 through 14. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Down at verse 9. Well, let's begin at verse 8. On the next day, we, were, we, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to submit wholeheartedly to it. I pray that you would give Uh, guidance, the illumination of your Holy Spirit to understand what your Word has to say. Help me to be a faithful preacher of your Word and help each one of us to be faithful in our reception of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we've come to a very controversial portion of the Scripture, and it's a passage of Scripture that a lot of people really dig their heels in to protect their theological turf. I hope that I'm not doing that this morning, but you never know your own heart. Uh, We need to be Bereans. We need to always be looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want whatever your Spirit has for me, and I pray that you would guide me and direct me as I read your Scriptures. But I think you'll see as we go through this passage that this really is a crucial passage on the charismatic uh, debate, so I can't just easily skip over it. We need to deal with it. And as I pointed out last week, there's a lot of different interpretations of verse 4 and verse 11 especially. And I have no illusions that one little sermon is going to settle every issue that's in your mind. If I can just get you to study the question and uh, give you enough information where you've got a good framework in which to study it, uh, I, will be, I will be happy. Now. In order for you to even understand why we should even spend a Sunday looking at this, uh, I need to give you a little background of why there's a debate on the subject in the first place. Uh, Frequently in the literature, you'll see others dividing Christians up into two camps, the cessationist camp and the non-cessationist camp. Uh, Cessationists have the supernatural gifts of the Spirit ceased non cessationist have they not ceased? That's the, the question, but I really don't find those terms to be particularly uh, useful unless you're on the polar extremes of that. Uh, they really don't fit a lot of people. Uh, let me give you an example. I think everybody would a- admit that Wayne Grudem is a non-cessationist, at least in some sense of, of that term. He believes that the supernatural gifts continue, and yet if you look at his book, um, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament and today. In chapter 1 he says the Old Testament gift of prophet has passed away and he believes that was inspired infallible fallible prophecy. And in chapter 2 he argues that the New Testament spiritual gift of apostleship has passed away and he sees apostleship as being equivalent to Old Testament prophet. And he has to really hold to that because... Um, in order to defend the integrity and the authority of the Scriptures, as the Scriptures themselves do, you have to come to a position where inspiration has ceased. Well, the only way systematically you could do that from his perspective is to see apostleship as uh, having passed away. Now, he exegetically, I think, does a good job of showing that. But then my question is, does that make him a cessationist? Because he believes that one of the gifts of the spirit supernatural gifts has passed away well it depends on what you mean by that Um, on the other side of the aisle there is a fascinating paper by Vern Poithress titled this is a big long puritan title modern spiritual gifts as analogous to apostolic gifts affirming extraordinary works of the spirit within cessationist theology so he labels himself as a cessationist and yet he says you know what a lot of what is going on in the charismatic movement is built, we need to embrace. So is he a cessationist? Is he not a cessationist? Well, I would say, yeah, he fits within the cessationist camp. I just finished reading a book uh, that Joel Beakey recommended that goes through and looks at all of the Puritan divines and what their views on this subject were in the 1600s. And he points out that the majority of them were clearly cessationist, And yet you look at their affirmation of dreams and visions and guidance and there were even a couple of those guys that talked about lower level prophecies and you begin to wonder what does cessationism even mean you know what's the difference between cessationism and non-cessationism now they did affirm absolutely inspired infallible inerrant authoritative you know uh, prophecy that has ceased well so do third wave charismatics and so I bring that up to say you shouldn't throw around the terms cessationist and non-cessationist too loosely uh, unless you're really clearly defining your terms. Now, I actually do label myself as a kind of cessationist because I believe that um, at least two of the spiritual gifts have passed away in the first century, and I think we can clearly exegetically show that, uh, inspired prophecy and inspired apostleship. Now, here is the rub. Um, I believe all prophecy was inspired and infallible and inerrant and authoritative. And uh, that's where uh, the controversy uh, comes in. Was it that way? And this is a perfect passage to look at that because Acts chapter 21 is the key passage that charismatics like Wayne Grudem used to say fills all wet. You know, clearly prophecy was not inspired, it was not inerrant, it was not infallible, so I think this is a good passage to look at that to see if my, my viewpoint um, uh, does stand the test of the Scripture. Now, Wayne Grudem argues, as by the way did a few of the Puritans, that there are two levels of prophecy, He argues that Old Testament prophecy was inspired and infallible. It communicated the very words of God, Uh, whereas he argues that New Testament prophecy is quite different and that it does not communicate the very words of God. Instead, it is a very fallible reception of God's revelation and a very fallible communication of that revelation uh, to other uh, people. Uh, And because it's not inspired, he says, you need to be cautious about what you receive in the way of prophecies from other people. You need to evaluate it with spirit-led judgment. Now, that raises the question, if your spirit-led judgment's not infallible and inerrant either, how do you know that your spirit-led judgment's any better than what this prophecy uh, came to you is? But anyway, I can appreciate where he's coming on that, and he will use... 1 Corinthians 14, which is really not his strongest text, his strongest text is Acts 21 for saying, look at verse 4, Paul rejected a prophecy and it was not a sin for him to reject that prophecy. Why would he reject it? Well, he would reject it because he knows that prophecies have mixture of truth and error in them. And so he doesn't have to be bound by those prophecies. He will look at Acts 21, verse 11, to try to show that the New Testament prophecy is always subject to some error. So those are the kinds of differences of view that I'm going to be uh, interacting with this morning while as much as possible looking at every uh, word in this text. So this is going to be one of those thinking cap sermon. You've got to put your thinking cap on this morning. I've put a ton into your notes so that you can do thinking and not madly scribbling things down. I wanted you to have extensive notes so you could really be processing what we're talking about. Now it is rare for me to counter one person all the way through a sermon, Uh, but I'm doing so today for three reasons. First of all, I think it'll be very helpful for you because many of you are very, very familiar with uh, Wayne Grudem's writing. Well, not many of you. Some of you are very familiar with Wayne Grudem's uh, views. Second, the influence of Wayne Grudem's writings has been enormous, as they should be. He's a great guy. God has used him to oppose... Uh, a lot of problems in the church, liberalism and feminism and homosexuality and Marxism and uh, all kinds of attacks against the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. And uh, Wayne Grudem, his writings have been very influential in pulling uh, the charismatic or the non-cessationist movement to a more biblical, a more solidly uh, grounded position. And so as such, I see him as an ally and as a friend in the gospel. However, and this is the third reason uh, for using him throughout his outline, his approach to the prophecies in Acts 21 could unintentionally undermine the great work that he is doing. And I've talked to charismatic pastors in the city who have borrowed a lot from his book, uh, but have used it to argue that the scriptures are not inerrant. Now, Grudem would not do that. Grudem is a champion of inerrancy, Uh, But one pastor reasoned that if the Scripture uses the term prophecy and that prophecy can have mistakes in it, then why cannot the Scripture have mistakes in it if the Scripture is termed as prophecy? And he looks at the book of Revelation, which calls New Testament books prophecy. And Romans 16 talks about New Testament books as prophecy. So he's saying this, if the fact that there is divine and human in congregational prophecy means that there will be truth and error in it, why cannot the fact that there is the divine and human in Scripture mean that there is truth and error in the Scripture? Again, Grudem valiantly tries to reject this and to argue against this kind of a concept, but this is a very relevant uh, passage. 2 Peter one twenty speaks of the prophecy of Scripture. So I think we do need to process through this. Now, it's my belief that there is no difference whatsoever between prophetic speech and prophetic writing, except for the fact that the latter is put down on paper. And uh, you should be aware that there were many inspired books of the Bible that God did not include in the canon, right? At the time they were written. They were said in the Old Testament... Uh, not to be included in the canon, and so um, just because it's written does not make it a part of the 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 the, the holy Bible. But there is no difference between uh, the two. Second Peter one twenty one is very clear on this. It says, "Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke." Notice this is not just writing. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter one verse twenty one. So this means it wasn't just Paul's writings that were the word of God, his prophetic writings, but his prophetic utterances, his prophetic speech was the very words of God as well. Let me give you an example from 1 Thessalonians 2.13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so we're not talking about writing here, we're talking about prophetic speech, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So Paul's oral prophecies were every bit as much inspired as his written prophecies were. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the different scriptures that we've looked at over the past uh, few years to show that prophecy has ended. There's a lot of scriptures in in the book of Revelation and Daniel chapter 9, Isaiah 8, uh, Zechariah 13, And uh, other passages like that. But I do want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this is a passage that uh, Wayne Grudem uh, spends a lot of time uh, discussing. And I think it's important that we understand um, how how to uh, deal with these scriptures. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Uh, Earlier he had said that, uh, you know, we are, uh, verse 12, part of the commonwealth of Israel. We're no longer strangers from the covenant like we used to be. Back at verse 20, "...having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord," in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God uh, in the Spirit. Now I want you to notice especially verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So he says that the church of Jesus Christ is built upon a foundation that's made up of three parts. First of all, it's Jesus Christ who is the chief cornerstone. That's the most important part of the foundation then the apostles are also a part of that foundation, and then there's prophets who are a part of that foundation. Now, Wayne Grudem sees the significance of this passage as indicating that the apostles have passed away. Just as you can't have multiple cornerstones being laid in every century and have multiple Christs, new messiahs that are coming all the time, you can't have multiple apostles in every century. Why? Because... Cornerstones in the foundation. The foundation is laid in the first century. These are foundational gifts. They're not going to be keep on being repeated in every generation. So whatever the passage is talking about, it was clearly intended for the first century. Grudem and I are agreed on that. A second thing that we're agreed on is that the context clearly indicates that the foundation is not made up of apostles and Old Testament prophets. And the reason we know that is that the context of the same paragraph which goes on into chapter 3 and verse 5, it indicates that there's new revelation that's been given to these apostles and prophets that has never been given to the Old Testament prophets. So, it can't refer to apostles and Old Testament prophets. It's New Testament in some way. But where we part paths is where Grudem argues that the Greek Granville Sharp rule applies to this passage It's just a a rule in advanced uh, Greek grammar. And uh, if the rule applies here, here's what he's saying. It's talking about. It's not talking about apostles and prophets as two separate groups of people. It's talking about apostles who are also prophets. Prophets. Okay, The apostles and the prophets are the same people. It's just two labels referring to the same people. Now, I admit, if the Granville Sharp rule applies in this verse, then he's exactly uh, right that it's um, uh, referring to apostles and prophets being the same people, or you could say it's apostolic prophets. The problem is that uh, many essays have been written in recent years showing that the Granville Sharp rule absolutely does not fit uh, in this uh, verse. Uh, Here's um, an advanced Greek grammar is one example that specifically refers to this verse and says, no, this would be violating some of the restrictions on the granville Sharp rule. He says, according to Sharp, the rule applied absolutely only with personal, singular, and non-proper nouns. The significance of these requirements can hardly be overestimated for those who have misunderstood Sharp's principle have done so almost without exception because they were unaware of the restrictions that Sharp set forth. Now, he spends 20 pages uh, talking about this boring uh, Greek rule. Uh, for me, anyway, it's a very interesting um, uh, discussion. But on pages 284 to 285, he uh, discusses Gruden's use of this rule And it shows how it's absolutely impossible uh, that Grudem does not understand the Greek um, Granville Sharp rule. And I'm going to read it to you. By the way, this is kudos to Wayne Grudem because he has been so influential, so important in the church that even a Greek grammar has to interact with him. So actually, this is a compliment to Wayne Grudem. But anyway, in this Greek grammar, it says this. This text has become something of a theological lightning rod in conservative circles in America in the past several years, largely due to the work of Wayne Grudem. Grudem argues that the apostles and prophets are identical here. This is essential to his view of New Testament prophecy. On the one hand, he holds to a high view of Scripture, viz., that the autographs are inerrant. On the other hand, he believes that non-apostolic prophets, both in the early church and today, mixed error with truth. If in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of apostles and other prophets, then it would seem that Grudem either has to deny inerrancy or affirm that non-apostolic prophets only spoke truth and were thus on a par with Old Testament prophets. Hence, he spends much ink arguing that in this text, the prophets are identical with the apostles, while elsewhere in the New Testament, the prophets are a separate class of individuals. This distinction allows him the luxury of embracing an inerrant New Testament while admitting that today's prophets, as well as first-century non-apostolic prophets, can commit error in their predictions. We must refrain from entering into the larger issues of charismata and fallible prophecy in our treatment of this text. Our point is simply that the syntactical evidence is very much against the identical view, even though syntax has been the primary grounds used in behalf of it. Now, the bottom line is that the argument Grudem uses for the apostles' ending is a very legitimate. It's been used for hundreds of years. But that argument also argues that prophets have ended. They are part of the foundation in the first century. And there's many other proofs that I've shared with you in the past on why that has ended. But some people will object that Why would we need so many thousands of prophets all over the place? Well, we don't know if there's thousands. We don't know how many are out there. But why would we need so many prophets if uh, they're not writing Scripture? Why would their infallibility be needed? Well, I would answer with two things. First of all, you can answer it this way. Why did God set up 13 apostles when only four of them wrote Scripture? Obviously, their infallibility was needed for more than just writing the Scripture. And I think all by itself, that would answer it. But there is a second answer that I give, and it appears that there was an enormous need for this kind of infallibility uh, in the prophets during the first century. When we looked at Acts chapter 15, we saw that there was an almost church-destroying controversy that had come around the subject of circumcision the Judaizers were saying that Gentiles had to get circumcised or they could not be part of the church. They could not be considered part of Israel. And Paul was fighting strongly against that and saying, no way, you cannot, you cannot have that. It was a controversy that ravaged the church. And so every church in the, in the empire is, is working with this and they're saying, well, how could they be part of the church? They've always been excluded. Unless they're circumcised, it makes perfect sense biblically uh, that they can't be in the church. And so it's a mystery uh, to, the, uh, to the Christians. So let's keep reading in Acts 3, because the paragraph does not stop at the end of chapter 2. What he's going to do is he's going to be showing that, yes, indeed, these prophets have a foundational ministry. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to, to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He's repeating this idea. The mystery of Jew and Gentile being in one body had never been revealed in the Old Testament. And now he says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit "...to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power." So what he's saying is apostles and prophets are fellow ministers of this same mystery. They were needed to settle this mystery once and for all and to do it in the first century. And both were equal to the task. Why? Because both were infallible representatives of God. Now that did not mean that they couldn't reveal other things. Of course they could. In fact, there were three primary purposes for God sending the prophets in the New Testament. The first is this mystery. This is something that had to be settled in all of the congregations the second is that they were bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel and against uh, Jews who were unrepentant throughout the empire. By the way, this is one of the primary purposes of a prophet in the Old Testament, is to bring covenant lawsuits. And they were trying to convince the church not to apostatize during the great apostasy leading up to 70 A.D., massive apostasy. But even those three purposes, if you have the gift of infallible revelation, Why can it not be used in other contexts? Let me give you some examples. Samuel wrote Scripture, but that did not mean that he couldn't also use his gift of prophecy in showing Saul where Saul had lost his donkeys, right? Well, in the same way, these uh, prophets, they could have a primary task of their prophetic ministry and yet also use this to warn Paul of uh, upcoming danger, But the prophets were equally part of the revelational foundation with the apostles. Now, we don't despise prophesying when we don't despise Paul's epistles that he wrote with prophetic power. So that, in a nutshell, is my position. And I admit it's a pretty big nutshell. This has been a massive introduction. And the rest of your outline, we're just going to sail through it very, very quickly. The first two tiny points we took a long time on. But I believe that all the gifts... Are for today, but that apostleship and prophecy were, as Isaiah 8 words it and Isaiah 9 words it, they were sealed up within the scriptures so that apostleship and prophecy that we have here is quickened by the Holy Spirit into our lives. We still have it. It's benefited us, all of these prophecies that God has given. And some people say, yeah, but it's only apostles who wrote scripture. That's absolutely not true. Mark was not an apostle, Luke was not an apostle, he was a prophet. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Acts. Hebrews, James, and Jude were not apostles. And so if apostles are the only ones who bring the Scripture, you've got real uh, trouble on your hands. Now, he tries to explain that, but uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, we're going to look at Acts 21. And um, from my perspective, this is the most credible text that Grudem uses to try to destroy my position. And verse 11 is the key one, but he, he does deal with verse 4, so we'll start there. Okay, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, well, let me first of all give you Wayne Grudem's interpretation. But if this really is a reporting of prophesying, as it certainly seems to be, then it is very significant for understanding the nature of prophetic authority in ordinary New Testament congregations. It is significant because Paul simply disobeyed their words something he would not have done if he had thought that they were speaking the very words of God. In short, this passage indicates a type of prophecy which was not thought by Paul to possess absolute divine authority in its actual words. The prophets at Tyre were not speaking words of the Lord. There was a revelation from the Holy Spirit to the disciples at Tyre, and in response to that revelation, they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Dr. Gaffin agrees, and I would point out that uh, Dr. Gaffin's interpretation is the same as mine, but Dr. Gaffin agrees. The difference in our viewpoints is that I would call the response or report of that revelation a prophecy, and Dr. Gaffin would not. And I would add, Phil Kaiser would not. He goes on, whatever term is used, it is significant that we would both say that there can be a revelation from the Holy Spirit to a person or persons and also a spoken response to that revelation which can have impaired validity and unreliability. That is really the essence of what I am arguing for in this book and what it seems to me the New Testament calls prophecy. Now, I would say that you know there's a lot of what he said there that I would uh, agree with Grudem. Uh, the main thing I don't agree with is that he would whether we could call uh, both what is revealed and their response to it as prophecy. I would say the only thing you could call prophecy is what God has directly revealed. Since the text does not call this prophecy, you can look in vain for the word prophecy there. Since the text does not do that, I think we need to be cautious on how we approach it. Now, here's some questions. First, did the Spirit tell Paul to stay out of Jerusalem or was it the disciples... Or and I failed to put this in your outlines, a third alternative is, was it both? The disciples and the Spirit uh, who told him not to go to Jerusalem. Both Grudem and I agree that the Spirit did not say that or there would be a contradiction in the sacred text and we looked at that extensively last week. Verse 4 says, they told Paul. Now there's something that the Spirit enables them to do as well but the text says, they told Paul. There are other prophecies in Acts, uh, and it says the Spirit says something, Acts 13, 2, and the Spirit said, but here it says, they told Paul. Now, I'm not going to repeat all of the extended proofs I went over last week, but I just want to briefly remind you there would be a major contradiction if the Spirit says one thing here, and earlier he said something quite different. In Acts 19, 21, it says Paul purposed in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, Verses 22 through 25, it says he was bound in the Spirit for Jerusalem. Then it goes on to say in every city, the Holy Spirit has said he'd go to Jerusalem and that in Jerusalem chains and tribulations would await him. So it would be false prophecies if he didn't go to Jerusalem. But then I think the inspired writings of Paul are exceptionally clear that he had to go there and you've got the scriptures in your outline. Uh, What he said by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that he was going to be taking all of these offerings from the Gentiles. He was going to be taking them, and he would give them in Jerusalem. And so Romans would not be an inspired and errant book of the Bible if he did not actually end up being in Jerusalem. Same with 1 Corinthians. We saw last week that Jesus approved of what Paul did in Jerusalem in Acts 23.11. said, hey, you're going to have to do exactly the same thing that you did here in Rome. Acts 21.14, Paul finally convinces Luke and all of the others, that going to Jerusalem was indeed the will of God. He says, So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now, Grudem and I agreed so far on that. I won't belabor that. But if that's the case, then the natural question comes up, why did Luke say that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem? What does through the Spirit mean? Grudem says, it expresses, quote, "...a rather loose relationship between the Holy Spirit and the prophet since it allows room for a large degree of personal influence by the human person himself." unquote. But, but I don't see how that could be the case if the very and the only thing that they are saying is what Grudem and I both say the Spirit did not say. I don't see how you could attribute that uh, to the Spirit. Now, it may be a general influence of the Spirit, yes, uh, on his part, But I don't see how the part Grudem sees as wrong could be attributed to the Spirit uh, in that way. And besides, the term through the Spirit can refer to an inerrant prophecy, inerrant revelation. For example, Acts 1-2 says about Jesus, "...until the day in which He was taken up, after He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen." So, here is Jesus authoritatively giving commandments through the Spirit, and that would have enormous authority on the church. Now, Grudem doesn't want to go there. He wants this to be non-authoritative. Same phrase, through the Spirit, is used in Acts 11.28, where it speaks of a previous prophecy of Agabus, which came true. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, it clearly refers to the inspiration of the apostles. Now, again, Grudem doesn't want to go in that direction. He wants this to mean uh, something that's uninspired prophecy. On the other hand, 1 Corinthians twelve eight indicates it wouldn't even have to be a prophecy. It says, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. I've had words of wisdom. I've had words of knowledge. I would never want to call them prophecy. Uh, so this could be something along those lines. Under sub-point 6, I list some scriptures that support Grudem's thesis um, of general influence of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, those verses don't refer to prophecy, okay? It refers to something else. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic on this verse, but it's my view, and it's the view of the majority of the commentators that I have on my shelf, that the saints got a previous prophetic revelation that was inspired about the dangers that Paul would face. It's very parallel to what goes on in verse 11. They got a prophecy. Based on that prophecy, that's through the Spirit, Based on that prophecy, they go to Paul and they say, Hey, Paul, there's going to be dangers you're going to face in Jerusalem. We think you ought not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so if it hadn't been for the Spirit revealing about these dangers, they would not be able to make a logical conclusion, don't go to Jerusalem. It's an okay logical conclusion. It's not the right one, but it's an okay conclusion that uh, they were coming to. So the point is you've got to distinguish between what they said and what the Spirit enabled uh, them to say. So that's my that's my take on on this. And uh, what D- Luke does is he makes these uh, four, first three prophecies very general, and the fourth one he amplifies on, uh, just so he can say, okay, I've talked about all of the warnings that Paul's been given. Let me expand on one so that you can see what it would look like. I think that's a very uh, credible interpretation. There's two other ways that people have reconciled these verses uh, with the rest of Scripture. But it's clear to me that uh, the Spirit's already told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And uh, anyway, this is the the interpretation of 22 of the commentaries. This is not a key verse, but I thought I needed to at least deal with it. Let's move down to verse 9. It's the next prophecy there. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, I agree with Grudem that this uh, prophecy is probably the same as the prophecy in verse 4, the prophecies in every city in chapter 20, probably the same as the prophecies in verse 11. Um, it I doesn't say that. We we're just assuming that. But based on the thematic way in which Luke develops the chapter, I think it makes perfectly logical sense to me. Uh, what Grudem is saying, but I don't see how Grudem can get from the text that this verse shows, quote, that these prophecies did not have the authority of words of the Lord. Now, here's how he comes to that conclusion. He says, look, Paul's quite clear that women cannot have authority over men. And uh, he says, uh, inspired revelation would be authoritative and if these women were getting inspired revelation, they would be exercising authority over apostles. Well, that actually just does not follow. Um, if their prophecies follow 1 Peter one twenty one, which they must because 1 Peter one twenty one says all prophecies follow that pattern... Uh, but if they follow that pattern, they would be exercising no more authority over the apostles when they give the direct revelation of God to the apostles than Balaam's donkey would be exercising authority over Balaam when God spoke through the donkey. Okay, They're, That's not an authoritative issue. They're just vehicles for God speaking directly to them. It's not an office. And if we don't take this position, we get in trouble on many passages in the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 13... There's prophets there who command Paul by the Spirit, they command Paul to go out and be missionaries. Now, does that mean those prophets have authority over, over apostles? No. See, the issue is not with the women, do they have apostolic authority? No. They can't have any authority, but having prophecy does not give authority any more here than it did with Deborah speaking to Barak. It does not give authority at all. Second Peter one twenty one. for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So I don't have any problem with women having prophesied uh, to men. I do have a problem with them teaching men or exercising authority over men, but um, uh, Peter is talking about all prophecy. And I think Grudem is reading into the text something that's simply not there. He's assuming something from elsewhere. Okay, now we get to the heart of Grudem's thesis, and that's in verse 11. And we're going to start flying here. Speaking of Agabus, Luke says, When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, because there aren't any modern prophets who have a 100% accuracy rate in all of the prophecies that they give what um, Grudem has to do is he has to find error in the New Testament prophecies. Otherwise, there's no parallel between New Testament prophets and modern uh, prophets. He knows Old Testament prophecy was inerrant, that it was infallible, but he says that whereas an Old Testament prophet, and the quotes are there in your outlines, speaks God's very words... A New Testament prophet speaks on the basis of some external influence and has no absolute divine authority. Why? Because he is speaking, get this phrase here, merely human words to report something God brings to mind, unquote. Now, I don't have any problem with saying God brings things to Grudem's mind or other charismatics' minds or my mind. You know, God does give illumination, but that's a far cry from speaking about... Inspiration. So I'm not denying their experience. What I am denying is that their experience is biblical prophecy. Let's look at the evidence. First of all, Agabus is called a prophet in a book that frequently calls the writers of Old Testament books prophets. Uh, there's not the slightest hint anywhere else in the book of, Re- uh, of Acts that uh, Luke did not think all prophets were inspired and fallible and authoritative. I've written in your outline every reference in Acts to the words prophet, prophets, prophesy, prophecies, prophecy. And you'll notice that in 28 verses, the word is referring to an inspired, inerrant prophet, either who lived in the Old Testament or who was prophesying about Jesus, the prophet. And there's only four or no seven verses where the word describes what Grudem calls a New Testament congregational prophet. But what is significant to me is that those references to New Testament prophets are mixed up with all of the references to the Old Testament prophets. Let me give you one example. Acts 13. Got two references to prophets in Antioch and the church there with references to the law and the prophets, Samuel the prophet, the prophets which are read every Sabbath and in a quotation from an Old Testament what it says prophets. Four references to Old Testament prophets mixed with two references to New Testament prophets. And you can study the rest of the verses for yourself, but that list, to me, is overwhelming evidence that there is not a hair's breadth of difference between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets in the book of Acts. Uh, Let's look at another example. and I want you to turn there with me. Acts chapter 15, so you don't fall asleep. You're going to have to flip your fingers through the pages here. Acts 15, and uh, look at verse uh, 32. Now, Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. I want you to notice the word also. If they were also prophets, who are the other prophets that Judas and Silas are being compared to? Well, exegetically, I have looked and looked through this passage. Exegetically, there's only two alternatives. Either the other prophets are being referred to as uh, the, the, uh, James is having written... The uh, Jerusalem decree in verse 28 says it was by the Spirit that he wrote that decree. That would be one option. Or the other option is the only reference to prophets in the whole of Acts chapter 15, and that's in verses 15 through 17 where it quotes Old Testament prophets uh, of Scripture. Either way, Judas and Silas are being compared to inspired prophets. Okay? He's been talking about inspired prophets, and he says, Oh, yeah, Judas and Silas are prophets also. Can you see that? There's no, no sense whatsoever that New Testament prophets are any different from the inspired Old Testament prophets. They uh, spoke the very words of God. Now, let's go back to Acts 21 and verse 11, and I want you to notice that Agabus is not only called a prophet, he acts with prophetic authority, even with Paul. No one would dare to walk up to Paul, you know, and grab his belt, untie it, take it off and start, you know, tying his hands and his feet unless... God had told him to do so, and the people, like Paul, already recognized that he was a prophet, which, of course, they did in Acts 11, verse 28. Um, Third, just as Ezekiel and other prophets had prophetic acting in connection with their prophecies, this text says that Agabus, quote, "...took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said..." This is prophetic acting. In fact, it's such a strong parallel to Old Testament prophets that several commentaries uh, comment on this. Fourth, Agabus begins his prophecy with a, thus says the Holy Spirit. The phrase, thus says thee, followed by the name of God or some title of God is used 448 times in the Old Testament to precede a Scripture prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy. Any Jew who reads what's going on here is going to say, wow, here's another Old Testament type prophet. He's talking just like the Old Testament prophets did. Fifth, just as Old Testament prophets were tested before they were officially recognized, Agabus had been tested in Acts 11:28. Luke says there, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And so this indicates an evaluation of a prophet. Let's let's um, consider the whole subject of evaluation. Grudem says that while individual prophecies should be evaluated by the saints, that you don't evaluate a prophet as to whether you categorize them as a true prophet or as a false prophet like they did in the Old Testament. In other words, Grudem wants Christians evaluating a prophecy not get sucked in by everything that's said, but he says, I don't want you saying just because 40 percent or more of what they say is wrong that they are suddenly false prophets. He's trying to put a wedge between Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. And by the way, if he doesn't do this, 100% of prophetic ministry would be wiped out in the United States. Cuz there ain't no 100% accuracy out there. The highest that I've ever seen recorded by charismatics themselves is 60% accuracy rate, okay? Uh, again, um When prophecies did not come true in the Old Testament, nobody was supposed to ever listen to that prophet again. In fact, he was in danger of being stoned. Uh, But with modern charismatics, prophets are constantly mixing truth with error, as Grudem freely admits. And after reading Grudem, I don't know definitionally how you could possibly say there could be such a thing as a false prophet in the New Testament. I don't know definition. Now, I, know, I assume he does believe in false prophets because 11 times the New Testament speaks about false prophets and he believes the Bible. So I assume he does believe that, but definitionally, I don't see how that could be the case. Um, here's my question. Why is Agabus not a false prophet if Grudem is correct that Agabus made two mistakes that are at the heart of his message? Now, I'm going to deal with that in a little bit. But this point is saying New Testament prophets were judged just like Old Testament prophets were. Let's see if I'm correct on this. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And do, do look at these scriptures with me because uh, I think it'll help you to stay awake, but it'll also help you to evaluate what I'm saying, whether it is true. In Matthew, Jesus said that He was going to be sending apostles and prophets to the church. but He also warns, hey, watch out. Not everybody who claims to be a prophet is a true prophet. There are going to be false prophets who are going to creep into the church. And He gives a means by which they can evaluate this or not. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And I want you to notice, He's warning about the prophets, not just the individual prophecies. He says you will know them, not just you will know the individual prophecies that they are talking about. He goes on in the middle of verse 16. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. I want you to notice, it's, not, it's, it's the tree itself, not just the prophecy or the fruit that is being judged. Now, obviously, the fruit's a part. Judging the fruit's a part of judging uh, the tree, uh, whether it's false. Judging the prophet, whether it's false. But both are being judged, both the fruit and the tree. So again, Grudem's thesis about New Testament prophets does not hold up. Continuing to read about this tree illustration of the prophets in verse 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Now, he's not talking about individual Christians and their sanctification. Otherwise, he'd be a perfectionist. He would be saying, once you get saved, it's impossible for you to sin now. Do you have any, if you were to change the analogy, do you have any bad fruit in terms of sin? Well, of course you do. All of us have bad fruit in that sense, but that's not the kind of bad fruit that he's talking about here. He's talking about prophets and prophecy, and he's indicating that when it comes to prophets and prophecy, true prophets cannot bear bad fruit. Impossible, he says. They never, ever, ever bear bad fruit. They don't have truth mixed with error. Let me read verse 18 again. A good tree, that's a good prophet, right? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, that's not a parallel to Old Testament prophecy. I don't know what is. People say, you know, the prophets aren't judged. Well, this seems like a judgment to me that it's a cast into the fire. You see, in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, he, he commanded the people... if. Even one prophecy turns out false. Don't even listen to that prophet. uh, Reject what he has to say. He's to be cut off from the people. And so God takes a prophecy very, very seriously in the Old Testament. This passage says He's taking prophecy very, very seriously in the New Testament. This is anticipating. What's going to happen in the church age? He's giving us foundational information of how to deal with prophets. So... Let me read verse 19 again. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not just the content of the prophecy that is rejected and discarded. It's the prophet himself who is judged and discarded. Can you see that? Uh, to me, it's, it, it's quite clear there. And again, this is in the church age. Verses 20-22, through 22, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven... Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? So we're not talking about false prophets or people who are from other religions. No, these are people in the church who think that they're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there are obviously in the New Testament false prophets. And I think this passage should be determinative in how we deal with the subject of prophecy. Why? Christ is giving His apostles instructions for the future on how to deal with it. Now, from my perspective, this means there are no prophets in the 20th century because there are no people who have a 100% accuracy rate. Now, does this mean that what they're experiencing is not from the Spirit? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, Many of these... Charismatics, I think, are receiving illumination from God's Spirit. It's just not prophecy. Uh, I think they're mistaken on that. Illumination is a far cry from inspired revelation. And so I believe this is one among many, many passages that teach that all prophets gave inspired revelation. They certainly were judged like Old Testament prophets were. Now, Grudem's thesis is that it's just the content of prophecy, not the prophet himself who's judged. Okay, we're trying to make contrasts here. I can't go through all of the different uh, scriptures. You can look for yourself sometimes. Zechariah 13, 1 through 6. It anticipates sometime after the crucifixion, sometime in the church age, when there won't be any more prophets. And secondly, there won't even just not be any more prophets. There won't be any false prophets, and all demons will be cleansed from the land. But uh, he does say in there that... that, um, uh, even where there are false prophets, they're going to be afraid to prophesy because they're automatically going to be judged as being false prophets. Let me go. Ahead, I'll go ahead and read it for you. Uh, it won't take that long. Uh, Zechariah 13 and um, verse um, three: It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies. Then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it talks about you know, them being ashamed of their, of their visions, etc. Um, quickly, moving on. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty nine. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others judge. Grudem says the others there are everybody in the congregation. Well, most commentators totally disagree with that. The context is the other prophets who are already recognized to be true prophets, they are the ones who are going to be uh, judging uh, the, uh, the prophetic activity. I want you to turn with me to one more on this judging or evaluating issue, and that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the reason we're turning to this is because a lot of times... Charismatics will give this verse to say that if you don't believe prophecy continues, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, that's a very important admonition. I don't want to quench the Spirit. I don't want to grieve the Spirit. I want everything that the Spirit wants for me. I want to be submissive to what He is doing. And so the question is not, what is the Spirit doing? Even some of the cessationist Puritans in the 1600s were experiencing identical things to what uh, third wave charismatics are experiencing today but they said it's not prophecy okay we're talking definitional here and I've experienced uh, many of the same things as well and I do not believe it's quenching the spirit to say prophecy does not continue but he does say here verse 20 do not despise prophecies why does he say that three things I could say here first of all If the Scriptures said God was going to continue to give prophecies in the New Testament, that they were not going to be sealed up, pass away, Isaiah 8, Daniel 9, other passages, then I'd say, well, absolutely, I'm totally for whatever the Holy Spirit uh, has to give me, uh, I am for. Uh, But the, the second thing I would say is one of the prophecies that Paul did not want them despising was the book of 1 Thessalonians. He was writing to them, rebuking them for their sins, and he is saying, look, don't despise uh, the prophecies that are being brought to you. And uh, they, we're in danger, deep water, if we despise any prophecy of Scripture. Why? Because it's the very words of God that are being spoken to us. They're inspired, they're infallible. There's a third reason why he would say, don't despise prophesying, is because God knew that there was going to be this great apostasy and he's warning the churches not only about the Judaism issue and the mystery issue, but he's warning them about apostasy and the churches, according to the book of Revelation and other passages, they were indeed despising these prophets who had been brought to the churches to warn them. And so the great apostasy did happen. It was a great chunk of the church that fell away. They had a very important uh, task to give. And he says, don't despise them. Now, let's keep reading because you can't just stop at verse 20. In the context of prophecy, Paul says, Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The Amplified Bible has abstain from evil, shrink from it, keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. He's talking about both the bad tree and the bad fruit. He's saying stay away from it. Don't even listen to them. Once you've tested a prophet to be false, don't even listen to the prophecies. And so the point is, Agabus had been evaluated just as every prophet should. In chapter 11, he was evaluated based on the fulfillment of a prophetic prediction. Now, with that as a background, let's look at Grudem's analysis of Agabus. On page 100, Grudem says, Strictly speaking, Agabus predicted two events which, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 18.22, which did not come to pass Deuteronomy 18.22. Now, I find it shocking that Grudem is willing to admit that if Agabus lived in the Old Testament, he would have been judged a false prophet and he would have been stoned. Why? He's quoting Deuteronomy 18.22. That's exactly what Grudem is admitting. Let me read that again. Strictly speaking, Agabus predicted two events which, quote, did not come to pass, unquote, Deuteronomy 18.22. And so here's the irony He is saying, yeah, Agabus would have been stoned in the Old Testament, but now Agabus is a paradigm of how prophets ought to function. That just does not compute in my head. I don't understand that. He goes on to say, Luke so clearly describes the non-fulfillment of the two parts of the prophecy in the immediately subsequent narrative. On page 98, he also approvingly quotes D.A. Carson as saying, about Agabus's prophecy, I can think of no reported Old Testament prophet whose prophecies are so wrong on the details, unquote. Now, based on what we have said and seen already about prophecy, if what Grudem says is true, if what D.A. Carson says is true, I think we're forced to say Agabus was a false prophet and uh, Paul shouldn't have had anything to do with him. I think that's the only conclusion. I don't, I don't see how you could say, oh, no, Agabus is a paradigm of how we ought to be living. Now, here's the question. Was Agabus wrong? And I say absolutely not. He was totally, totally right. What's the first purported error? Let me read subpoint one from your outlines. He says, First, Grudem claims that Agabus makes a mistake by saying that the Jews will, quote, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, unquote when what actually happened is that the Jews do not deliver Paul over into the hands of the Gentiles, but tried to kill him themselves, Acts 21:31. He had to be forcibly rescued from the Jews by the tribune and his soldiers, Acts 21:32 through 33. Grudem calls this a mistake. He says, man, this is a mistake at the very heart of the prophecy. And he says on those two key elements, he is just a bit wrong. My answer is, hey, Paul didn't think he was wrong. And that's good enough for me. Paul uses exactly the same language in chapter 28 to describe when he was arrested by the Jews and delivered over to the Gentiles. Uh, I've given in your outlines a chart there with the three parts of each verse parallel. Agabus says, first part of the verse, so shall the Jews in Jerusalem bind the man, using the Greek word deo for bind. Paul said, I was arrested in Jerusalem, using the same Greek word deo for arrested. So whether you translate it as bind or arrested, Paul said, it happened. What Agabus prophesied happened to me. Agabus says, and deliver him over using the Greek word paradidomi. Paul said, and handed over using the same Greek word. Agabus said, into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul said, to the hands of the Romans. So here's the point. If Agabus was wrong, Paul is wrong in Acts chapter 28. Can you see that? Uh, And my response is, Paul ought to know. He's the one who experienced it. He's the one who went through it. And he said that it happened. Now, here's the problem that I have. Acts chapter 21 does go on to talk about the arrest of Paul and all of that. But it's not saying everything that happened that day. It's giving a tiny snapshot of what happened that day. And so just because it's not recorded in Acts 21 does not mean that it didn't happen. That's fallacious. Let me give you one plausible explanation. And as anybody knows, you can't say something is an error. Even if you don't know what happened, you can't say something is an error if there's two or three plausible explanations. So let me give you a plausible explanation. All the way through Acts 21, it's the crowds who are acting, or the Jews who are acting. What were the leaders of that time doing? Now, this happened in the temple, and the people who were in charge of the temple were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did everything they could to please the Romans to make sure that they kept their jobs. They were in cahoots. In fact, the high priest was appointed by the Romans. And so here's my hypothesis. You've got all of these Jewish crowds are ticked off and they want to lynch Paul. And when the Romans come, I think the Sadducees would be fine with him being lynched. But as soon as the Romans come, they're thinking, oh, this is not good. And so they're trying to hand Paul over to the Romans while the Jews are trying to lynch Paul. To me, that's a perfectly sensible explanation of what happened. Now, we don't know that because we're not told that, but it is plausible, so you can't say that it was a mistake that Paul uh, that, uh, that Agabus made. Second supposed mistake, Grudem contrasts the statement in verse 11, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, with verse 33, the commander commanded them to be bound with two chains. The claim is that it was the Romans, not the Jews, who bound Paul, making this an inaccurate prophecy. So that's Grudem's position. Now, again, you can't call it an error if there's a plausible explanation. And this is what conservatives do when liberals attack the integrity of the Bible. They say, how do you explain this? This is obviously an error. They say, well, I don't know what happened, but here's here's a plausible explanation. Here's another plausible explanation. It can't. You can't say it's an error if you can legitimately explain it. Well, we do the same here. Let me read my answer, and I won't even comment on it. There were no doubt two bindings, one with a belt and one with chains. Notice that Agabus used the belt from Paul's robe to bind Paul, something that would have been readily available to the Jews when they laid hands on him, verse 27, cried for help, verse 28, seized Paul, verse 30, took him out of the temple, verse 30, and beat him, verse 32. It is very likely that they used a restraint of some sort during that time lapse. The Romans did not use a belt, but used chains, verse 33. Though the text does not say it, it makes perfect sense to say that the Jews bound Paul with a belt, perhaps even his own belt, in order to beat him, and the Romans later used chains for imprisonment. But it is clear that Grudem has not demonstrated any error. Now, another difference I see between Grudem and our text is that Grudem a number of times tells people, don't say, thus saith the Lord. And I noticed in your outlines, I failed to give the full quote of Sam Storm. Sam Storm says the same. There's a lot of third wave things. They're very nervous because they realize if this is not inspired the very words of God, it's presumptuous for us to act like it's the very words of God and to say, Thus saith the Lord. Um, And I applaud him for his cautions, that's great, but I think it would achieve the same goal and be much more biblical if we told modern so-called prophets, well, I don't deny that the Spirit's given you illumination or whatever, but don't call it prophecy. It isn't prophecy. Uh, Instead, speak of it as a word of knowledge or illumination or guidance or something like that. The fact of the matter is, Agabus does indeed say, thus says the Holy Spirit, and then he gives the very words of the Spirit. And to me that argues strongly against Grudem's position. Now, of course, Grudem tries to explain it away. Point D gives a sample quote. On page 100, Grudem says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, means here, not that the very words of the prophecy were from the Holy Spirit, but only that the content generally had been revealed by the Spirit. On the next page, he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, means the Holy Spirit was saying approximately this, or something like this. And my answer is twofold. First of all, Thus says the with a divine name or a divine title following it, is used 448 times in the Old Testament to convey the very words of God in Scripture. And it's arbitrary to assign a totally different meaning to something the Jews uh, would be used to uh, from the Old Testament, uh, a technical phrase. And so... Uh, that was a phrase uh, assigned to infallible prophecy in the Old Testament. My second response is that the New Testament uses similar phrases to introduce Scripture. And I give 20 New Testament occurrences. Uh, to me, shows Agabus was an inspired prophet just like the Old Testament prophets were. Now, some people say, man, that just trivializes inspiration. Tri- you know, inspiration needs to be restricted to something lofty like the the, the Bible, the Word of God. It trivializes Inspiration to say that inspired utterances are given for mundane things like warning something, somebody about uh, danger in the future. I would say it no more trivializes inspiration than Paul's statement, "Greet Mary," in Romans 16 trivializes Romans, or "Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas" in 2 Timothy 4:13 tri- trivializes the book of 2 Timothy, or Samuel's prophesying about where Saul could find his donkeys trivialized the fact that he wrote Scripture. The Holy Spirit can use his gift of inspiration anywhere that he chooses. Now, I think you can see there, it makes a huge difference what we believe about these things. It makes a difference in how we view the canon of the Scripture. If the only people who could write Scripture were... I mean, yeah, the only people who were, had a gift of infallibility were the apostles then we have to ask, where does the book of Mark come from because he was not a prophet? Where does the book of Luke and Acts and Hebrews and James and Jude come from? Now, his answer is, well, those are men who are associated with the apostles. And uh, they read it and they approved it. I just cannot buy that. Number one, that's not what the scripture says about it. That's reading into the text a, a theory on inspiration. Besides that, the apostles were associated with all kinds of people. Elders of every church, you know, that they planted. And to me, that is not an adequate explanation. Second Peter 1.20 says, "...no prophecy of Scripture is of any private origin." It's the origin that is at stake, not whether the apostle read what Mark wrote. The next verse says, "...for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." Now, don't get me wrong. Grudem is a leading defender of the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. He's an able combatant on that point. But I think it would be a whole lot simpler to just say apostles and prophets wrote the Scriptures. And then you could just spend one or two pages instead of a hundred pages trying to defend the canon of the Scripture. Second, it, takes, it makes a difference in how we evaluate prophecies today. Is the revelation simply guidance or is it Prophecy. Now, Grudem is doing a valiant job, an admirable job, of trying to get charismatics not to treat prophecy abusively and give it authority that he doesn't believe it should have. But it would be much simpler to say, hey, all the prophetic gifts, I mean, all of the, the spiritual gifts are at work except for apostleship and prophecy. Those two are sealed up in the Scripture, as Daniel 9 says, before 70 A.D. By the way, I should say, why were, was Scriptures sealed up before... <coughs> Well, maybe I shouldn't go down that rabbit trail before 70 AD. It's because that related to the great apostasy. But anyway, prophets. Third, it affects our confidence in Scripture. There are pastors in our city who excuse their mistakes by saying not only that Agabus made mistakes, they say Old Testament prophets made mistakes. Now, Grudem doesn't say this. Uh, Grudem argues that the Old Testament was inerrant, it was inspired. But this has happened to me uh, about a dozen times in the last ten years. And, and they say it's it's just their theory of how God's revelation works. One pastor told me, for example, that when Paul had the Macedonian vision, it was a man saying, come over to Macedonia. And he said when he got there, it ended up being a woman. It was Lydia who had uh, called him over to Macedonia. And, and And he's saying Paul's chauvinism kept him from being able to accurately receive and communicate this information. I said... That is so ridiculous. There were men there too. What about the Philippian jailer? What about some of the other men that were in that church? But these guys will borrow stuff from Wayne Grudem's books and they will use it to indicate that all uh, Scripture uh, can be subject to error as well. And Grudem's trying to correct those misguided efforts, but I don't think he can do... There's sufficient grounds within his system to be able to do so. It would be much easier to accept the scriptural teaching that apostleship... And prophecy were inspired. They were foundational gifts. They're with us to the second coming, but they only have those gifts as they're preserved in the Bible. And I receive every prophecy that God has given to me because it's recorded here in the Bible. I do not despise it one little bit. The last reason this issue matters is because it poses needless obstacles to unified ministry. Now, I do want to end by admonishing you not to be prideful or adversarial in your interactions with charismatics. Uh, This is an in-house sermon. It's given to strengthen you because some of you have been uh, troubled over this issue. But receive charismatics who differ in the Lord. Be patient with them. Uh, Many times what they are experiencing is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not that we're trying to limit the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I pray that God would bust the ceilings off this place You know, in terms of spiritual gifts coming into our midst. That's not the the issue at all. But it is important that we never relinquish the one sure word of prophecy that God has given to us, and it's the Bible. It is sufficient. We're going to be singing in a little bit about the sufficiency of Scripture. But trust it, use it, evaluate my teaching based on it. You know, this is inspired, I am not. And so be Bereans and eat the corn from this sermon and throw away the corn cob. I have no problem with that, this is the only infallible thing. Uh, that you have in life, but may we all grow in Christ as a result. Amen. Father, thank you for your word, that it is a guide to our life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts that you have given and the illumination that you have given. We want to walk in the supernatural, but I pray that you would also protect us from the slander of saying that uh, New Testament prophets could not be trusted. Father, you have laid a foundation that is sure and solid, in the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We want to value that by valuing your scriptures. And uh, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.